Hello and welcome to part two of the podcast, which delves deeper into the key elements of the Bayes White Paper on corporate governance and the role of the regulator. Although this was only supposed to be one episode, there was so much to talk about, we decided we needed two. So here's the second part with my guests, Tom Gosling of the London Business School, Andrew Ninian of the Investment Association, Marla Shah Colon of EY, Elizabeth Richards from ICAW, and John Green Adada, Head of Board and Committees at BP. So trust in business has been declining over decades. And that's not just confined to business. You know, there's been a crisis of confidence and trust in many, many institutions, parliament, broadcasters, social media, a whole range of different institutions. But in business, it's caused by corporate scandals and anger over things like executive pay and the tax that's been paid by multinationals. Given that the white paper is designed to restore trust in business, indeed, it's part of the title of the white paper, Does this go far enough with corporate governance and regulation to help restore trust? And just as an aside before I bring people in, imagine a scenario, say 2025, 2026, when all the relevant pillars of this white paper has been set up, AGA and other matters, and there's a corporate scandal and a corporate failure, because there will be. Does that mean that trust is completely evaporating again and we'll have to start the whole process of reform once again? John, you brought the issue of trust in. Do you want to kick off in terms of that? Thanks, Ian. Very happy to. So does it go far enough with with regard to trust? I see it as a starting point, in effect. And the starting point is essentially trying to encourage convergence around or greater convergence around the governance standards to which boards, auditors and disclosures would, would be held. But I think that there is quite a lot of work which organizations have to undertake to reconnect with their stakeholders. So this is how I see this package of reform linking into what we already have as part of our legal and governance framework, such as uh, Section 172. So organizations taking this as a starting point to identify their key stakeholders and connect meaningfully with them to help those stakeholders understand their position on various issues, be that um, executive pay, be that climate-related matters, uh, and so on. So I personally don't see the white paper as the silver bullet that will drive us towards restored trust. I see it as a starting point, but there's much to be done, and a lot that needs to be done that doesn't necessarily have to be legislated or regulated uh, in effect. Marla, could I ask you the same question in terms of will it do enough to restore trust? I'm going to be slightly controversially and because I think trust in business actually has risen in the last 18 months since the pandemic, at least. So in the UK, and I'm quoting figures from the latest um, Edelman barometer because they issued a spring update report in June 2021, and it's actually 53% compared to 47% pre-pandemic. Actually, it's interesting, it's the only institution which is trusted and where trust has risen compared to government, the media, NGOs, etc. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that's great, we should all, you know, go home, job done. But I think companies have emerged quite strongly as a force for good through the pandemic. They've helped solve social problems. And I do think what has happened is the review that's happening now is framed using, you know, the Kingman, the Bryden and the CMA reviews, which date back to such a two and a half, three years ago. 
So I think in some ways time time has lapsed. And I also think we need to therefore think about a governance framework that directs and channels this goodwill that has been built up in the last 18 months, such that our framework becomes an enabler to keep it on the trajectory it's on. And also the rhetoric that actually trust is declining because I'm not saying, you know, it's great, but it's it's increasing. So let's keep it on that trajectory. The other thing that I think John said, you know, it's a starting point, it's not going to be a silver bullet. For me, what needs to happen as well, and this is kind of beyond corporate governance, but we need to solve the problem with um, misinformation. You know, we, we keep saying we're in a pandemic, we're also in an infodemic, if I you can use that term. Because if you look at, again, how trust varies between informed public and the mass public, there's a huge information trust gap, you know, 76% of informed public trust business, and that falls to 48% of the mass public. And I think if we don't solve that, and if our media doesn't improve, you know, we have headlines all the time that are actually sometimes misquoting what companies are doing or what auditors are doing. And I think that is a huge problem we need to address in the next few years, because if we don't, then I think we can bring in lots of regulation and law and enforcement for directors, for auditors, you know, strengthening regulator. I don't think we'll improve trust in business until we solve that issue. Thank you, Marla. I, I saw as well the Edelman Trust Barometer. And what was I found particularly interesting, you're right, you know, trust in business is, is rising. And if you look relative to other areas, social media, government and NGOs, business was seen as the only institution, for want of a better term, that was both ethical and competent, which is a big shift from recent years. But Tom, on that basis, and given maybe business has stepped up to the plate during the pandemic, will the white paper do enough to restore trust? Or is, as Marla was perhaps hinting, maybe we don't need it quite so much based upon what was being going on? Yeah, I and mean, I'm really glad that, that Marla raised that point. I was, was going to make the same point myself. And in fact, trust in business is at a higher level than it was a decade ago. And what's also interesting is that individuals trust in their own employer is even higher at around kind of 70% plus. So I, I do think to some degree, there's an element of pushback required on this narrative that we're ever spiraling downwards in terms of trust in business. I think we have to be quite realistic about what any changes to corporate governance rules are going to do around trust in business. I mean, you can't restore trust, you can restore trustworthiness. And then it's up to others whether they trust you or not. And I think the problem is there will always be enough things going wrong that someone who's determined not to trust business can find fuel to the argument. So so I think in many respects, rather than trying to manage to the outcome of restoring trust, we need to think about actually do these changes support good businesses that benefit society, create wealth, enhance social mobility and create the environment where you know, trust can increase if, if circumstances allow, because I think the, you know, the conditions around, you know, the dynamics of trust are very, very complicated. And I think on the whole that these proposals do that, they do contribute to good business practices, they modernise aspects of our corporate governance system that were frankly, a little bit old fashioned, and they put it on a on a proper footing for the 21st century. But I think we should be quite limited in our expectations about the extent to which these changes will directly lead to an improvement in trust in business. Elizabeth, Tom talks about not necessarily restoring trust, but modernising the ecosystem and trying to play a part in restoring trustworthiness. Is that the right approach? I think it is the right approach. 
my starting point is that I think it's really important not to look back in history with rose-tinted glasses and think that we had a golden era when everyone trusted big business. I just don't think that era actually was ever in play. So I think it's dangerous to uh, think that we're in a worse position than we were in the past because perhaps there's always been this embed cynicism around big business and perhaps we'll never fully overcome it. For me, executive pay is a key issue and whatever reforms are made to the ecosystem, however many successes the regulator may have, unless we can crack that particular nut, Ian, I don't think public perception of business and trust in business will grow significantly until we can justify these massive pay packets. And I think that Marla referred to the differences in society between levels of trust in business. And that, to me, chimes with the other key issue of improved diversity within companies and the need for diversity indeed within the regulator. Andrew, the same question to you, please, in terms of does this white paper do enough to restore trust? I think we've got to see this as part of a package of reforms which various governments have, have introduced over over recent years. And, and uh, it will do so much, but I think also you look at the wider package. So actually, as others have touched on, there's been a key focus on, on stakeholders over recent years. And I, I think that's set business and UK PLC in good stead for actually managing their business through the early days of the pandemic. And everyone was very clear that actually companies needed to focus on their main stakeholders to make sure that they could all survive, look after their employees, look after their suppliers. And if they did that, there was more chance that they would have a long term future. So actually, a lot of of whether trust will be regained, rebuilt, whatever position you're in, will actually be based on how do companies perform and how do they treat their license to operate as we continue to come out of the pandemic and certainly the calls for Build Back Better or a sustainable economic recovery take hold and addressing some of the issues which society expect business to be adapting to as we go through, but it climate change, but it diversity, but it fair working conditions. So I think this white paper can help with some of the structural issues, but actually business needs to grapple with some of the, the day-to-day issues, their license to operate, which will really have a big impact on the trust of businesses going forward. You're listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. Andrew, I want to stay with you, if I may, on my final question, but I'm keen to get the views and insights from all of the panel. John and others, when John was opening his remarks, he said, you know, you've got to think about the timing and the context of this. We're emerging from the biggest economic shock, arguably since the Industrial Revolution took hold several hundred years ago. You know, there's the social effects of the public health tragedy. We have left the European Union and we're still determining, well, what's our viable economic model as a nation as we have left that institution? So although these measures by themselves, in an isolation, could be okay, is the timing right? Does this compromise the government's policy intention of trying to attract further foreign direct investment into the UK? And Andrew, I was particularly keen to start with you, because you know, you'll be acutely aware and having to deal with this, about making sure those capital markets in the UK are the best place 
to secure the investment for the UK. Does this, an emphasis upon increased regulation, greater intervention, more accountability for directors, audit committees, investors, does this act as a drag on trying to get capital into the UK or does it actually boost it? I think we need to split this into to two. One is, does it attract capital? And secondly, does it attract companies to list, operate and be located in this country? And I think in terms of the capital answer, if you look around the world, the UK is, is well regarded in terms of governance. If we're putting new proposals in in the UK, then other countries are looking at what we're doing and there is interest in how they can take similar reforms into their own countries. So actually the high governance standards in the UK certainly means that it can attract capital from overseas investors. And, and you talked to your, your first question with me around highlighting the level of overseas investment in UK PLC now. That is because of the good governance standards, the reporting requirements. I suppose one of the key questions is, is it attracting companies to come and list in the UK? And would companies prefer to remain private? And we do we have the balance right in terms of attracting high growth companies that are actually reflecting of our modern society and getting the balance right of attracting entrepreneurs or companies to list and operate in the UK. And I think one of the, the simple proposals which helps in this regard is extending the definition for who's captured in terms of the public interest entities so that actually there is more of a level playing field between public and private companies, which should help to address getting more companies to list, operate and support the economy in the UK. Let me push you on that, Andrew. I'm conscious of time, but I'm really keen to get your views on this. You're quite right in terms of we want more companies to list in the UK. The listings review commissioned by the government and led by Lord Hill was precisely to try and achieve that. But is the Hill review somewhat contrary to the white paper that we've been discussing today? Is government and policy objectives not joined up in this really important business policy space? I suppose the white paper allows a bit of flexibility for newly listed companies. I think for us, the question is, what do we need as investors in those newly listed entities? Do we need sufficient disclosures to get comfort. They are well governed and actually they are going to be long-term prospects which deliver long-term returns. So I think it is important that we're joined up that actually we make a good thing of the high quality governance standards that we have in the UK because it does attract capital and think about how can we get companies that aspire to those standards because they see the benefits in well-governed because it leads to a lower cost to capital and leads to better outcomes for both the company its shareholders and wider society. Marla, your thoughts on this, please, in terms of does it drag our international competitiveness down? Yeah, I think I agree with Andrew that I think we are still able to attract capital. The question becomes, you know, do companies want to locate here? I don't think it's just because of extra regulation. I think there's a broad economic factors also play into this. So, you know, Brexit is one, availability of suitable labour is another one. So I think there's a range of factors which will make companies reconsider whether they want to uh, list here and locate here, but also generally public markets, you know, there's less IPOs. I think I was reading the other day, we had about 2,600 AIM and main market companies 10 years ago. Now we have 
2000. So the flows of capital are going towards private market. And I just think given how large some of these private companies are becoming, if you take the stakeholder centric view of governance, I think it's right that the, the paper actually thinks about extending or reconsidering the definition of who regulation applies to, you know, this concept that Andrew just mentioned, widening the scope of public interest entities, because otherwise there isn't going to be a 11 playing playing field. But I just think it's it's a very, it's going to be a hard balance to achieve. You know, you can potentially over-regulate and not sort of think about the opportunity side of governance and actually allowing directors to get on with their day job of, of running the company, making strategic decisions. I think it's a really fine balance. Elizabeth, your thoughts, please. My thoughts are that this question goes beyond bottom line and beyond investment decisions and beyond listing decisions. This country has a pedigree in corporate governance that has been unsurpassed until now. And that's been very important for our country's international reputation. The fact that many other countries have emulated the corporate governance code is something that we should be very proud of. And I think for us to keep our high standards and all the good advantages that arise for the country from us having a great reputation around standards, it does mean that we need to up our game and harden regulation now. And um, I don't think we should shy away from that. Thank you. Tom, can I have your thoughts about, does this really help or hinder our competitiveness in that post-pandemic, post-Brexit global economy? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that these changes will have a, a massive impact either way, because I think, you know, decisions around inward investment are made on much, much broader factors than, than the corporate governance regime, which, which I don't think was a major impediment to that. Going back to something John said right at the start of this podcast, I do think you know, we need to be aware of, you know, the burden that this is being being placed on companies during transition. You know, there's quite a lot of change that companies are at the intersection of here in terms of reporting obligations, directors' duties, the relationship with their auditor. And, you know, picking up on Marla's point, you know, boards aren't all about risk and governance. They're also about strategy and opportunity. And what we don't want is to, at this point, a very significant economic transition for the country. We don't want our boards to be kind of choking on the implementation of new rules. So I do think that some very careful thought and consultation needs to be undertaken with the corporate community to figure out how we can best phase these rules in, in a way that makes it digestible and doesn't end up distracting all board attention towards kind of compliance issues as opposed to pursuing growth opportunities. And John, uh, final word to you. Tom mentioned that you'd opened this up and you and, and the work that you do with the boards and committees, you know, you really are at the coal first. Perhaps that should be oil well of this activity. And you're dealing with really quite, you know, historically important matters in terms of how do we as a business pivot to a sustainable net zero company in the face of the way that the global economy is moving. You know, does this detract from that? Is it a case of, is this a help or a hindrance in terms of making sure you've got a well-governed company? I think this is part of, it's a necessary cause towards demonstrating good governance for, for the companies that are already doing a lot of what's proposed as part of the, the package of reforms. There is a distraction risk here, though, from a resourcing perspective, because 
all this regulatory change typically comes with greater demands for resource internally, and that resource could be diverted from other really big ticket items, which, uh, again, the government is focused on, such as the the climate change push um, and so on. So I don't think it will be a material factor comparing it to some of the the other sort of bigger macro factors that we're having to deal with. But it's one that, that shouldn't be disregarded completely, particularly if we think about potential extension of these rules to relatively smaller companies that won't have as much resource as some of the larger listed uh, organizations have. And then there's a final point around cost, just making sure that as companies come out of a time when their P&Ls and balance sheets have been hard hit, having a phased approach, as Thomas suggested, might be the right way to ease this in. Because ultimately, as everyone else has said, longer term, this is really where we want to be. We, we want to continue to lead the world on this, but we just need to make sure that there's a balance and understanding as well. And I think that's a good point to end on in terms of our ambition to lead the world on corporate governance and indeed international competitiveness and prosperity. I'd like to thank the panel for a really engaging and rich discussion. Marla, Tom, John, Andrew and Elizabeth, many, many thanks for your insights and contributions. We're really grateful. Thank you for listening. The next session in this series is the thorny issue of audit reform. I hope you've enjoyed today's contribution and I look forward to you tuning in for the next session. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.